Chapter Nine of Storky and Co. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Storky and Co. by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Nine. The Slaves of the Lamp. Part Two. That very infant who told the story of the capture of Bonagui, a conference of the powers, many inventions, to Eustace Cleaver, novelist, inherited an estateful baronetcy, with vast revenues, resigned the service, and became a landholder, while his mother stood guard over him to see that he married the right girl. But, new to his position, he presented the local volunteers with a full-sized magazine rifle range two miles long across the heart of his estate, and the surrounding families, who lived in savage seclusion among woods full of pheasants, regarded him as an erring maniac. The noise of the firing disturbed their poultry, and infant was cast out from the society of J.P.s and decent men, until such time as a daughter of the county might lure him back to right thinking. He took his revenge by filling the house with choice selections of old schoolmates home on leave, affable detrimentals, at whom the bicycle-riding maidens of the surrounding families were allowed to look from afar. I knew when a troop-ship was in port by the infant's invitations. Sometimes he would produce old friends of equal seniority, at others young and blushing giants, whom I had left small fags far down in the lower second and to these infant and the elders expounded the whole duty of man in the army. "'I've had to cut the service,' said the infant, "'but that's no reason why my vast stores of experience should be lost to posterity.' He was just thirty, and in that same summer an imperious wire drew me to his baronial castle. "'Got a good hall, ex-Tamar, come along.' It was an unusually good hall arranged with a single eye to my benefit. There was a baldish, broken-down captain of native infantry, shivering with ague behind an indomitable red nose, and they called him Captain Dixon. There was another captain, also of native infantry, with a fair moustache. His face was like white glass, and his hands were fragile, but he answered joyfully to the cry of Tertius. There was an enormously big and well-kept man, who had evidently not campaigned for years, clean-shaved, soft-voiced, and cat-like. But still Abanazar, for all that he adorned the Indian political service. And there was a lean Irishman, his face tanned and blue-black with the sons of the telegraph department. Luckily the bay's doors of the bachelor's wing fitted tight, for we dressed promiscuously in the corridor or in each other's rooms, talking, calling, shouting, and anon waltzing by pairs to songs of Dick Four's own devising. There were sixty years of mixed work to be sifted out between us, and, since we had met one another from time to time in the quick scene-shifting of India, a dinner, camp, or a race-meeting here, a dak bungalow, or a railway station up-country somewhere else, we had never quite lost touch. Infant sat on the banisters, 
hungrily and enviously drinking it in. He enjoyed his baronetcy, but his heart yearned for the old days. It was a cheerful babble of matters personal, provincial, and imperial. Pieces of old call-over lists and new policies cut short by the roar of a Burmese gong, and we went down not less than a quarter of a mile of stairs to meet the infant's mother, who had known us all in our school days, and greeted us as if those days had ended a week ago. But it was fifteen years since, with tears of laughter, she had lent me a grey princess skirt for the amateur thea theatricals. That was a dinner from the Arabian Nights, served in an eighty-foot hall full of ancestors and pots of flowering roses, and what was more impressive, heated by steam. When it was ended, and the little mother had gone away, you boys want to talk, so I shall say good night now. We gathered about an applewood fire in a gigantic polished steel grate under a mantelpiece ten feet high, and the infant compassed us about with curious liqueurs, and that kind of cigarette which serves best to introduce your own pipe. Oh, bliss! grunted Dick Four from the sofa, where he had been packed with a rug over him. First time I've been warm since I came home. We were all nearly on top of the fire, except Infant, who had been long enough at home to take exercise when he felt chilled. This is a grisly diversion, but much affected by the English of the island. If you say a word about cold tubs and brisk walks, drawled McTurk, I'll kill you, Infant. I've got a liver, too. Remember when we used to think it a treat to turn out of our beds on a Sunday morning, thermometer fifty-seven degrees if it was summer, and bathe off the pebble ridge? Ugh! thing I don't understand, said Tertius, was the way we chaps used to go down to the lavatories, boil ourselves pink, and then come up with all our pores open into a young snowstorm or a black frost. Yet none of our chaps died that I can remember. Talking of baths, said McTurk with a chuckle, Remember our bath with number five, Beetle, the night rabbit's eggs and rocked king. What I wouldn't give to see old Storky now. He's the only one of the two studies not here. Storky is the great man of his century, said Dick Four. How do you know? I asked. How do I know? said Dick Four scornfully. If you've ever been in a tight place with Storky, you wouldn't ask. I haven't seen him since the camp at Pindy in eighty seven, I said. He was going strong then, but seven feet high and four feet through. Adequate chap, infernally adequate, said Tertius, pulling his moustache and staring into the fire. Got damn near court-martialed and broke in Egypt in eighty-four, the infant volunteered. I went out in the same trooper with him, as raw as he was. Only I showed it, and Storky didn't. What was the trouble? said McTurk, reaching forward absently to twitch my dress tie into position. Oh, nothing. His colonel trusted him to take twenty Tommies out to wash, or groom camels, or something at the back of Swakin. And Storky got him broiled with the fuzzies five miles in the interior. He conducted a masterly retreat, and wiped up eight of them. He knew jolly well he'd no right to go out so far, so he took the initiative and pitched in a letter to his colonel, who was throffing at the mouth, complaining of the paucity of support accorded to him in his operations. Gad, it might have been one fat brigadier slang in another, and then he went into the staff corps. That is entirely Storky," said Abnazar from the armchair. 
"'You've come across him too,' I said. "'Oh, yes,' he replied in the softest tones. "'I was at the tail of that—that that epic. Don't you chaps know?' We did not, Infant McTurk and I. We called for information very politely. "'Twasn't anything,' said Tertius. "'We got into a mess up in the Cahine Hills a couple of years ago, and Storky pulled us through, that's all.' McTurk gazed at Tertius with all an Irishman's contempt for the tongue-tied Saxon. "'Heavens!' he said. "'And it's you and your likes govern Ireland. Tertius, aren't you ashamed?' "'Well, I can't tell a yarn. I can chip in when the other fellow starts bucking. Ask him.' He pointed to Dick Four, whose nose gleamed scornfully over the rug. "'I knew you wouldn't,' said Dick Four. "'Give me a whisky and soda. I've been drinking lemon squash and ammoniated quinine while you chaps have been bathing in champagne, and my head's singing like a top.' He wiped his ragged moustache above the drink, and, his teeth chattering in his head, began. "'You know the Cahine Marlot expedition, when we scared the souls out of them with a field force they daren't fight against?' Well, both tribes—there was a coalition against us—came in without firing a shot, and a lot of hairy villains, who had no more power over their men than I had, promised and vowed all sorts of things. On that very slender evidence—Pussy dear—I was at Simla," said Abenazar hastily. "'Never mind. You're tarred with the same brush. On the strength of those tuppenny-halfpenny treaties, you asses of politicals reported that the country was pacified and the government, being a fool as usual, began road-making, depending on local supply of labour. Remember that, Pussy? The rest of our chaps, who'd had no look-in during the campaign, didn't think there'd be any more of it, and were anxious to get back to India. But I'd been in two of these little rows before, and I had my suspicions. I engineered myself, summa ingenio, into the command of a road patrol. No shoveling, only marching up and down, genteely with a guard. They'd withdrawn all the troops they could, but I nucleused about forty Pathans, recruits chiefly of my regiment, and sat tight at the base camp, while the road parties went to work as per political survey. Had some rippin' sing-songs in camp, too, said Tertius. My pup—thus did Dick Four refer to his subaltern—was a pious little beast. He didn't like the sing-songs, and so he went down with pneumonia. I rootled round the camp and found Tertius gassing about as a D.A.Q.M.G., which God knows he isn't cut out for. There were six or eight of the old coll at base camp. We're always in force for a frontier row. But I'd heard of Tertius as a steady old hack, and I told him he had to shake off his D.A.Q.M.G. breeches and help me. Tertius volunteered like a shot, and we settled it with the authorities, and out we went. Forty Patans, Tertius and me, looking up the road parties, McNamara's. Remember old Mac, the sapper, who played the fiddle so damnably at Umbala? Mac's party was the last but one. The last was Storky's. He was at the head of the road with some of his pet Sikhs. Mac said he believed he was all right. Storky is a Sikh, said Tertius. He takes his men to pray at the Durbar Sahib at Amritsar regularly as clockwork when he can. Don't interrupt, Tertius. I was about forty miles beyond Mac's before I found him and my men pointed out gently but firmly that the country was rising. "'What kind of country, Beetle? "'Well, I'm no word-painter, thank goodness, but you might call it a hellish country. "'When we went up to our necks in snow, we were rolling down the cud. 
well-disposed inhabitants who were to supply labour for the road-making, don't forget that, pussy dear, sat behind rocks and took pot-shots at us. Old, old story. We all legged it in search of Storky. I had a feeling that he'd be in good cover, and about dusk we found him and his road-party, as snug as a bug in a rug, in an old Marlot stone fort, with a watch-tower at one corner. It overhung the road they had blasted out of the cliff fifty feet below, and, under the road, things went down pretty sheer, for five or six hundred feet into a gorge about half a mile wide and two or three miles long. There were chaps on the other side of the gorge, scientifically getting our range. So I hammered on the gate and nipped in, and tripped over Storky, in a greasy, bloody old pochine, squatting on the ground, eating with his men. I'd only seen him for half a minute about three months before, but I might have met him yesterday. He waved his hand all sereno. "'Hello, Aladdin. Hello, Emperor,' he said. "'You're just in time for the performance.' I saw his Sikhs looked a bit battered. "'Where's your command? Where's your subaltern?' I said. "'Here, all there is of it,' said Storky. "'If you want young Everett, he's dead, and his body's in the watch-tower. They rushed our road-party last week and got him and seven men. We've been besieged for five days. I suppose they let you through to make sure of you. The whole country's up. Strikes me you walked into a first-class trap." He grinned, but neither Tertius nor I could see where the deuce the fun was. We hadn't any grub for our men, and Storky had only four days' whack for his. That came a depending on your asinine politicals, pussy dear, who told us that the inhabitants were friendly. To make us quite comfy, Storky took us up to the watch-tower to see poor Everett's body, lying in a foot of drifted snow. It looked like a girl of fifteen, not a hair on the little fellow's face. He'd been shot through the temple, but the Mahalots had left their mark on him. Storky unbuttoned the tunic and showed it to us, a rummy, sickle-shaped cut on his chest. Remember the snow all white in his eyebrows, Tertius? Remember when Storky moved the lamp and it looked as if he was alive? Yes, said Tertius with a shudder. Remember the beastly look on Storky's face, though? with his nostrils all blown out, same as he used to look when he was bullying a fag. That was a lovely evening. We held a council of war, up there over Everett's body. Storky said the Marlots and the Kekins were up together, having sunk their blood feuds to settle us. The chaps we'd seen across the gorge were Kekins. It was about half a mile from them to us as a bullet flies, and they'd made a line of sungars under the brow of the hill to sleep in and starve us out. The Marlots he said, were in front of us, promiscuous. There wasn't good cover behind the fort, or they'd have been up there, too. Storky didn't mind the Marlots half as much as he did the Kekins. He said the Marlots were treacherous curs. What I couldn't understand was, why in the world the two gangs didn't join in and rush us? There must have been at least five hundred of them. Storky said they didn't trust each other very well, because they were ancestral enemies when they were at home. And the only time they'd tried a rush, He'd hove a couple of blasting charges among them, and that had sickened him a bit. It was dark by the time we finished, and Storky, always serene, said, You command now. I don't suppose you mind my taking any action I may consider necessary to reprovision the fort? I said, Of course not. And then the lamp blew out. So Tertius and I had to climb down the tower steps. We didn't want to stay with Everett, and got back to our men. Storky had gone off to count the stores, I supposed. Anyhow, Tertius and I sat up in case of a rush. They were plugging at us pretty generally, you know, relieving each other till morning. Morning came. 
No Storky, not a sign of him. I took counsel with his senior native officer, a grand white-whiskered old chap, Rutton Singh, from Julunda way. He only grinned, and said it was all right. Storky had been out of the fort twice before, somewhere or other, according to him. He said Storky had come back unchipped, and gave me to understand that Storky was an invulnerable guru of sorts. All the same, I put the whole command on half-rations, and set them to picking out loopholes. About noon there was no end of a snowstorm, and the enemy stopped firing. We replied gingerly, because we were awfully short of ammunition. Don't suppose we fired five shots an hour, but we generally got our man. Well, while I was talking with Rutten Singh, I saw Storky coming down from the watch-tower, rather puffy about the eyes, his pochteen coated with claret-coloured ice. "'No trust in these snowstorms,' he said. "'Nip out, quick, and snaffle what you can get. There's a certain amount of friction between the Kekins and the Marlots just now.' I turned Tertius out with twenty patans, and they bucketed about in the snow for a bit till they came on a sort of camp about eight hundred yards away, with only a few men in charge and half a dozen sheep by the fire. They finished off the men and snaffled the sheep, and as much grain as they could carry, and came back. No one fired a shot at them. There didn't seem to be anybody about, but the snow was falling pretty thick. "'That's good enough,' said Storky, when we got dinner ready, and he was chewing mutton kebabs off a cleaning rod. "'There's no sense in risking men. They're holding a powwow between the Kekins and the Marlots at the head of the gorge. I don't think these so-called coalitions are much good. Do you know what that maniac had done? Tertius and I shook it out of him by instalments. There was an underground granary cellar-room below the watch-tower, and in blasting the road Storky had blown a hole into one side of it. Being no one else but Storky, he had kept the hole open for his own ends, and laid poor Everett's body slap over the well of the stairs that led down to it from the watch-tower. He had had to move and replace the corpse every time he used the passage. The Sikhs wouldn't go near the place, of course. Well, he got out of this hole and dropped onto the road. Then in the night, and a howling snowstorm, he dropped over the edge of the cud and made his way down to the bottom of the gorge, forded the nullah, which was half frozen, climbed up on the other side along a track he'd discovered, and come out on the right flank of the Kekines. He had then, listen to this, crossed over a ridge that paralleled their rear, walked half a mile behind that, and come out on the left of their line, where the gorge gets shallow, and where there was a regular track between the Marlot and the Kekin camps. That was about two in the morning, and as it turned out a man spotted him, a Kekin. So Storky abolished him quietly, and left him with the Marlot mark on his chest, same as Everett had. I was just as economical as I could be, Storky said to us. If he'd shouted, I should have been slain. I'd never had to do that kind of thing but once before, and that was the first time I'd tried that path. It's perfectly practicable for infantry, you know. What about your first man? I said. Oh, that was the night after they killed Everett. I went out looking for a line of retreat for my men. A man found me. I abolished him, privat him, scragged him. But on thinking it over it occurred to me that if I could find the body, I'd hove it down some rocks, I might decorate it with the Marlot mark, and leave it to the Kekines to draw inferences. So I went out again the next night, and did. The Kekines are shocked at the Marlots perpetrating these two dastardly outrages, after they'd sworn to sink all blood feuds. 
I lay up behind their sungars early this morning and watched them. They all went to confer about it at the head of the gorge. Awfully annoyed they are. Don't wonder. You know the way Storky drops out his words one by one. My God! said the infant explosively, as the full depth of the strategy dawned on him. Dear man! said McTurk, purring rapturously. Storky's talked, said Tertius. That's all there is to it. No, he didn't, said Dick Four. Don't you remember how he insisted that he had only applied his luck? Don't you remember how Rutton Singh grabbed his boots and grovelled in the snow, and how our men shouted? None of our Patans believed that was luck, said Tertius. They swore Storky ought to have been born a Patan. And remember when we nearly had a row in the fort when Rutton Singh said Storky was a Patan? Gad, how furious the old chap was with my Jemadar! But Storky just waggled his finger, and they shut up. Old Runsing's sword was half out, though, and he swore he'd cremate every Kakeen and Marlot he killed. That made the Jemadar pretty wild, because he didn't mind fighting against his own creed, but he wasn't going to crab a fellow Mussulman's chances of paradise. Then Storky jabbered Pushtu and Punjabi in alternate streaks. Where the deuce did he pick up his Pushtu from, Beetle? Never mind his language, Dick, said I. Give us the gist of it. I flatter myself I can address the wily Patan on occasion, but hang it all, I can't make puns in Pushtu, or top off my arguments with a smutty story as he did. He played on those two old dogs of war like a like a concertina, Storky said, and the other two backed up his knowledge of Oriental nature, that the Kakeens and the Marlots between them would organise a combined attack on us that night, as a proof of good faith. They wouldn't drive it home, though, because neither side would trust the other, on account, as Rutten Singh put it, of the little accidents. Storky's notion was to crawl out at dusk with his Sikhs, manoeuvre them along this ungodly goat-track that he'd found, to the back of the Kakeen position, then lob in a few long-shots at the Marlots when the attack was well on. That'll divert their minds and help to agitate them, he said. Then you chaps can come out and sweep up the pieces, and we'll rendezvous at the head of the gorge. After that, I move we get back to Mac's camp and have something to eat. You were commanding, the infant suggested. I was about three months senior to Storky, and two months Sir Tertius's senior, Dick Four replied. But we were all from the same old coll. I should say ours was the only little affair on record where someone wasn't jealous of someone else. We weren't, Tertius broke in. But there was another row between Gulshir Khan and Rutten Singh. Our Jemadar said, and he was quite right, that no Sikh living could stalk worth a dam, and that the Koran Sahib had better take out the Patans, who understood that kind of mountain work. Rutten Singh said that Koran Sahib jolly well knew every Patan was a born deserter, and every Sikh was a gentleman, even if he couldn't crawl on his belly. Storky struck in some women's proverb or other that had the effect of doubling both men up with a grin. He said the Sikhs and the Patans could settle their claims on the Kakeens and the Marlots later on, but he was going to take his Sikhs along for this mountain climbing job, because Sikhs could shoot, and they can too, give them a mule load of ammunition apiece, and they're perfectly happy. And out he gat, said Dick Four. As soon as it was dark, and he'd had a bit of a snooze, him and thirty Sikhs went down through the staircase in the tower, every mother's son of them saluting little Everett, where it stood propped against the wall. Last I heard him say was, Kubadar! Tumbalinga! Look out, you'll fall! 
and they tumble-lingered over the black edge of nothing. Close upon 9 p.m. the combined attack developed, Kekins across the valley and Marlots in front of us, plugging at long range and yelling to each other to come along and cut our infidel throats. Then they skirmished up to the gate, and began the old game of calling our Patan's renegades and inviting them to join a holy war. One of our men, young fellow from Dera Ismail, jumped on the wall to slang em back, and jumped down blubbing like a child. He'd been hit smack in the middle of a hand. Never saw a man yet who could stand a hit in the hand without weeping bitterly. It tickles up all the nerves. So Tertius took his rifle and smote the others on the head to keep em quiet at their loopholes. The dear children wanted to open the gate and go in at em generally, but that didn't suit our book. At last, near midnight, I heard the whop, whop, whop of Turkey's martinis across the valley, and some general cursing among the Marlots, whose main body was hid from us by a fold in the hillside. Storky was browning em at a great rate, and very naturally they turned half right and began to blaze at their faithless allies, the Kakeens. Regular volley firing. In less than ten minutes after Storky opened the diversion, they were going at it hammer and tongs. Both sides of the valley, when we could see, the valley was a rather mixed-up affair. The Kakeens had streamed out of their sungars above the gorge to chastise the Marlots, and Storky—I was watching him through my glasses—had slipped in behind them. Very good. The Kakeens had to leg it along the hillside up to where the gorge got shallow and they could cross over to the Marlots, who were awfully cheered to see the Kakeens taken in the rear. Then it occurred to me to comfort the Kakeens. So I turned out the whole command, and we advanced a la pas de charge, doubling up what, for the sake of argument, we'll call the Marlots' left flank. Even then, if they'd sunk their differences, they could have eaten us alive. But they'd been firing at each other half the night, and they went on firing. Queerest thing you ever saw in your born days. As soon as our men doubled up to the Marlots, They'd blaze at the Kakeens more zealously than ever, to show they were on our side, run up the valley a few hundred yards, and halt to fire again. The moment Storky saw our game, he duplicated it his side of the gorge, and, by Jove, the Kakeens did just the same thing. Yes, but, said Tertius, you forgot him playing. Our Patsy mind the baby on the bugle to hurry us up. Did he? roared McTurk. Somehow we all began to sing it, and there was an interruption. Rather! said Tertius, when we were quiet. No one of the Aladdin company could forget that tune. Yes, he played Patsy. Go on, Dick. Finally, said Dick Four, we drove both mobs into each other's arms on a bit of level ground at the head of the valley, and saw the whole crew whirl off, fighting and stabbing and swearing in a blinding snowstorm. They were a heavy, hairy lot, and we didn't follow them. Storky had captured one prisoner, an old pensioned sepoy of twenty-five years' service, who produced his discharge, an awfully sporting old card. He'd been trying to make his men rush us early in the day. He was sulky, angry with his own side for their cowardice, and Rutten Singh wanted to bayonet him. Sikhs don't understand fighting against the government after you've served it honestly. But Storky rescued him, and froze on to him tight, with ulterior motives, I believe. When we got back to the fort, we buried young Everett. Storky wouldn't hear of blowing up the place, and bunked. We'd only lost ten men, all told. Only ten out of seventy. How did you lose em? I asked. Oh, there was a rush on the fort early in the night, and a few Marlots got over the gate. It was rather a tight thing for a minute or two, but the recruits took it beautifully. Lucky job we hadn't any badly mooded men to carry, because we had forty miles to McNamara's camp. By Jove, how we legged it! 
Halfway in, old Rutton Singh collapsed, so we slung him across four rifles and Storky's overcoat, and Storky, his prisoner, and a couple of Sikhs were his bearers. After that I went to sleep. You can, you know, on the march, when your legs get properly numbed. Max swears we all marched into his camp snoring and dropped where we halted. His men lugged us into tents like grandbags. I remember waking up and seeing Storky asleep with his head on old Rutten Singh's chest. He slept twenty-four hours. I only slept seventeen. But then I was coming down with dysentery. Coming down? What rot! He had it on him before we joined Storky in the fort, said Tertius. Well, you needn't talk. You hove your sword at McNamara and demanded a drumhead court-martial every time you saw him. The only thing that soothed you was putting you under arrest for every half-hour. You were off your head for three days. Don't remember a word of it, said Tertius placidly. I remember my orderly giving me milk, though. How did Storky come out? McTurk demanded, purling hard over his pipe. Storky? Like a serene Brahmini bull. Poor old Mac was at his royal engineer's wit's end, to know what to do. You see, I was putrid with dysentery, Tertius was raving, half the men had frostbite, and McNamara's orders were to break camp and come in before winter. So Storky, who hadn't turned a hair, took half his supplies to save him the bother of lugging em back to the plains, and all the ammunition he could get, and, concilio et auxilio, rutten singy, tramped back to his fort with all his Sikhs and his precious prisoners, and a lot of dissolute hangers-on that he and the prisoner had seduced into service. He had sixty men of sorts, and his brazen cheek. Mac nearly wept with joy when he went. You see, there weren't any explicit orders to Storky to come in before the passes were blocked. Mac is a great man for orders, and Storky is a great man for orders, when they suit his book. He told me he was going to the Engadine, said Tertius, sat on my cot smoking a cigarette, and making me laugh till I cried. McNamara bundled the whole lot of us down to the plains next day. We were a walking hospital. Storky told me that McNamara was a simple godsend to him, said Dick Four. I used to see him in Mac's tent, listening to Mac play in the fiddle, and between the pieces wheedling Mac out of picks and shovels and dynamite cartridges hand over fist. Well, that was the last we saw of Storky. A week or so later the passes were shut with snow. I don't think Storky wanted to be found particularly just then. He didn't, said the fair and fat Abanazar. He didn't, ho ho! Dick Four threw up his thin, dry hand, with the blue veins at the back of it. Hold on a minute, pussy. I'll let you in at the proper time. I went down to my regiment, and that spring, five months later, I got off with a couple of companies on detachment, nominally to look after some friends of ours across the border, actually, of course, to recruit. It was a bit unfortunate, because an ass of a young Nike carried a frivolous blood-feud he'd inherited from his aunt into those hills, and the local gentry wouldn't volunteer into my corps. Of course, the Nike had taken short leave to manage the business, but that was all regular enough. But he'd stalked my pet orderly's uncle. It was an infernal shame, because I knew Harris of the Goosneys would be covering that ground three months later, and he'd snaffle all the chaps I had my eyes on. Everybody was down on the Nike, because they felt he ought to have had the decency to postpone his, his disgustful armours until our companies were at full strength. Still, the beast had a certain amount of professional feeling left, he sent one of his aunt's clan by night, tell me that, if I'd take safeguard, he'd put me on to a batch of beauties. I nipped over the border like a shot, and about ten miles on the other side, 
in a nullah my reparee in charge showed me about seventy men variously armed but standing up like a queen's company then one of them stepped out and lugged round an old bugle just like who's the man bancroft ain't it feeling for his eyeglass in a farce and played ar patsy mind the baby ar patsy mind that was as far as he could get that also was as far as dick four could get because we had to sing the old song through twice again and once more and subsequently in order to repeat it he explained that if i knew the rest of the song he had a note for me from the man the song belonged to whereupon my children i finished that old tune on the bugle and this is what i got i knew you'd like to look at it don't grab we were all struggling for a sight of the well-known unformed handwriting i'll read it aloud fort everett february nineteen dear dick or tertius the bearer of this is in charge of seventy-five recruits all pucker devils but desirous of leading new lives they have been slightly polished and after being boiled may shape well i want you to give thirty of em to my adjutant who though god's own ass will need men this spring the rest you can keep you'll be interested to learn that i have extended my road to the end of the marlot country all headmen and priests concerned in last september's affair worked one month each supplying road metal from their own houses everett's grave is covered by a forty-foot mound which should serve well as a base for future triangulations Singh sends his best salams i am making some treaties and have given my prisoner who also sends his salams local rank of khan bahadur a l corcoran well that was that said dick four when the roaring the shouting the laughter and i think the tears had subsided i chaperoned the gang across the border as quick as i could they were rather homesick but they cheered up when they recognized some of my chaps who'd been in the kakeen row and they made a ripping good lot it's rather more than three hundred miles from fort everett to where i picked em up now pussy tell them the latter end of stalky as you saw it abnazar laughed a little nervous misleading official laugh oh <laughs> it wasn't much i was at simla in the spring when our stalky out of his snows began corresponding direct with the government after the manner of a king suggested dick four my turn now dick he'd done the whole let of things he shouldn't have done and constructively pledged the government all sorts of action pledged the state's ticker eh said mcturk with a nod to me about that but the embarrassing part was that it was all so thundering convenient so well reasoned don't you know came in as pat as if he'd had access to all sorts of information which he shouldn't of course pooh said tertius I back Storky against the Foreign Office any day. He'd done pretty nearly everything he could think of, except striking coins in his own image and superscription, all under cover of building this infernal road, and being blocked by the snow. His report was simply amazing. Von Lennet tore his hair over it at first, and then he gasped, Who the deuce is this unknown Warren Hastings? He must be slain. He must be slain officially. The Viceroy will never stand it. It's unheard of. He must be slain by His Excellency in person. Order him up here and pitch him a stinger. Well, I sent him no end of an official stinger, and I pitched in an unofficial telegram at the same time. You? This with amazement from the infant, for Abnazar resembled nothing so much as a fluffy Persian cat. Yes, me, said Abnazar. 
"'Twasn't much, but after what you've said, Dicky, "'it was rather a coincidence, because I wired. "'Aladdin has now got his wife. "'Your Emperor is appeased. "'I think you'd better come to life. "'We hope you've all been pleased.' "'Funny how that old song came up in my head. "'That was fairly non-committal and encouraging. "'The only flaw was that his Emperor wasn't appeased by a very long chalk.' Storky extricated himself from his mountain fortresses, and leafed up to Simla at his leisure, to be offered up on the horns of the altar. "'But,' I began, "'surely the Commander-in-Chief is the proper—' His Excellency had an idea that if he blew up one single junior captain, same as King used to blow us up, he was holding the reins of empire, and, of course, as long as he had that idea, von Leinert encouraged him. I'm not sure von Leinert didn't put the notion into his head. "'They've changed the breed then since my time,' I said. "'Perhaps. Storky was sent up for his wigging like a bad little boy. I've reason to believe that His Excellency's hair stood on end. He walked into Storky for one hour. Storky at attention in the middle of the floor, and, so he vowed, von Leinert pretending to soothe down His Excellency's topknot in dumb show in the background. Storky didn't dare look up, or he'd have laughed. "'Now, wherefore was Storky not broken publicly?' said the infant, with a large and luminous leer. "'Ah, wherefore?' said Abenazar. "'To give him a chance to retrieve his blasted career, and not break his father's heart.' Storky hadn't a father, but that didn't matter. He behaved like a—like the Sanoa Orphan Asylum, and His Excellency graciously spared him. And then he came round to my office, and sat opposite me for ten minutes, puffing out his nostrils. Then he said— Pussy, if I thought that basket-hanger—' "'Ah, he remembered that,' said McTurk. "'That Tuana basket-hanger governed India. I swear I'd become naturalized Muscovite to-morrow. I'm a femme incomprise. This thing's broken my heart. It'll take six months' shooting leave in India to mend it. Do you think I can get it, Pussy?' He got it in about three minutes and a half, and, seventeen days later, he was back in the arms of Rutten Singh. Horrid disgraced with orders to hand over his command, etc., to Cathcart McMoney. Observe, said Dick Four, one colonel of the political department in charge of thirty Sikhs on a hilltop. Observe, my children. Naturally, Cathcart, not being a fool, even if he is a political, let Storky do his shooting within fifteen miles of Fort Everett for the next six months. And I always understood they and Rutten Singh and the prisoner were as thick as thieves. Then Storky loafed back to his regiment, I believe. I've never seen him since. "'I have, though,' said McTurk, swelling with pride. We all turned as one man. It was at the beginning of this hot weather. I was in camp in the Julunda Doab, and stumbled slap on Stocky in a Sikh village, sitting on the one chair of state, with half the population grovelling before him, a dozen Sikh babies on his knees, an old harridan clapping him on the shoulder, and a garland of flowers round his neck. Told me he was recruiting.' We dined together that night, but he never said a word of the business at the fort. Told me, though, that if I wanted any supplies, I'd better say I was Koran Saib's pie. And I did, and the Sikhs wouldn't take my money. Ah, that must be one of Rutten Singh's villages, said Dick Four. And we smoked for some time in silence. I say, said McTurk, casting back through the years, did Storky ever tell you how Rabbit's Eggs came to Rock King that night? No, said Dick Four. Then McTurk told. 
I see, said Dick Four, nodding. Practically he duplicated that trick over again. There's nobody like Storky. Well, that's just where you made a mistake, I said. India's full of Storkies. Cheltenham and Haleybury and Marlborough chaps, that we don't know anything about. And the surprises will begin when there's a really big row on. We'll be surprised, said Dick Four. The other side. The gentlemen who go to the front in first-class carriages. Just imagine Storky let loose on the south side of Europe with a sufficiency of Sikhs and a reasonable prospect of loot. Consider it quietly. There's something in that, but you're too much of an optimist, Beetle, said the infant. Well, I've a right to be. Ain't I responsible for the whole thing? You needn't laugh. Who wrote Ladin has now got a wife, eh? What's that got to do with it? said Tertius. Everything, said I. Prove it, said the infant. And I have. End of chapter 9, Slaves of the Lamp, part 2, and end of Storky and Co. by Rudyard Kipling.